Chapter Two of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn, by Andre Norton, Chapter Two, Planetfall. Raff Kirby, flitter pilot and technier lay on the padded shock cushion of his assigned bunk and stared with wide disillusioned eyes at the stretch of stark gray metal directly overhead he tried to close his ears to the mutter of meaningless words coming from across the narrow cabin raff had known from the moment his name had been drawn as crew member that the whole trip would be a gamble a wild gamble with the odds all against them rs ten those very numbers on the nose of the ship told part of the story ten exploring fingers thrust and turn out into the blackness of space. RS-3's fate was known. She had blossomed into a pinpoint of flame within the orbit of Mars. And RS-7 had clearly gone out of control while instruments on Terra could still pick up her broadcasts. Of the rest, well, none had returned. But the ships were built, manned by lot from the trainees, and sent out one every five years with all that had been learned from the previous job, each refinement the engineers could discover incorporated into the latest to rise from the launching cradle. RS-10. Raff closed his eyes with weary distaste. After months of being trapped inside her ever-vibrating shell, he felt that he knew each and every rivet, seam, and plate in her only too well. And there was no reason yet to believe that the voyage would ever end. They would just go on and on through empty space until dead men manned a drifting hulk. There, to picture that was a danger signal. Whenever his thoughts reached that particular point, Raff tried to think of something else, to break the chain of dismal foreboding. How? By joining in Wanstead's monologue of complaint and regret? Raff had heard the same words over and over so often that they no longer had any meaning except as a series of sounds he might miss if the man who shared this pocket were suddenly stricken dumb. Should never have put in for training, Wanstead's wine went up the scale. That was unoriginal enough. They had all had that idea the minute after the sorter had plucked their names for crew inclusion. No matter what motive had led them into the stiff course of training, the fabulous pay, a real interest in the project, the exploring fever. Raff did not believe that there was a single man whose heart had not sunk when he had been selected for flight. Even he, who had dreamed all his life of the stars and the wonders which might lie just beyond the big jump, had been honestly sick on the day he had shouldered his bag aboard and first taken his place on this mat and waited, dry-mouthed and shivering, for blast-off. One lost all sense of time out here. They ate sparingly, slept when they could, tried to while away the endless hours artificially divided into set periods. But still weeks might be months, or months weeks. They could have been years in space, or only days. All they knew was the unending monotony which dragged upon a man until he either lapsed into a dreamy rejection of his surroundings, as had Hamp and Floy, 
or flew into murderous rages, such as kept Morris in solitary confinement at present. And no foreseeable end to the flight. Raff breathed shallowly. The air was stale. He could almost taste it. It was difficult now to remember being in the open air under a sky, with fresh winds blowing about one. He tried to picture on that dull strip of metal overhead a stretch of green grass, a tree, even the blue sky and floating white clouds. But the patch remained stubbornly gray. The murmur of Wanstead went on and on, a drone in his aching ears, the throb of the ship's life beat through his own thin body. What had it been like on those legendary early flights, when the secret of the overdrive had not yet been discovered? when any who dared the path between star and star had surrendered to sleep, perhaps to wake again generations later, perhaps never to rouse again. He had seen the few documents discovered four or five hundred years ago in the raided headquarters of the scientific outlaws, who had fled the regimented world government of Pax, and dared space on the single hope of surviving such a journey in cold sleep, the secret of which had been lost. At least, Raff thought, they had escaped the actual discomfort of the voyage. Had they found their new world or worlds? The end of their ventures had been debated thousands of times since those documents had been made public, after the downfall of Pax and the coming into power of the Federation of Free Men. In fact, it was the publication of the papers which had given the additional spur to the building of the R.S. Armada. What man had dared once, he could dare anew, and the pursuit of knowledge which had been so long forbidden under Pax was heady excitement for the world. Research and discovery became feverish avenues of endeavor. Even the slim hope of a successful star voyage and the return to Terra with such rich spoils of information was enough to harness three-quarters of the planet's energy for close to a hundred years. And if the RS-10 was not successful, there would be eleven, twelve, more, flaming into the sky and out into the void, unless some newer and more intriguing experiment developed to center public imagination in another direction. Raff's eyes closed wearily. Soon the gong would sound, and this period of rest would be officially ended. But it was hardly worth rising. He was not in the least hungry for the concentrated food. He could repeat the information tapes they carried dull word for dull word. "'Nothing to see, nothing but these blasted walls!' Again Wanstead's voice arose in querulous protest. Yes, while in overdrive there was nothing to see. The ports of the ship would be sealed until they were in normal space once more. That is, if it worked, and they were not caught up forever within this thick trap where there was no time, light, or distance. The gong sounded, but Raff made no move to rise. He heard Wanstead move, saw from the corner of his eye the other's bulk heave up obediently from the pad. "'Hey, mess gong!' he pointed out the obvious to Raff. With a sigh the other levered himself up on his elbows. If he did not move, Wanstead was capable of reporting him to the captain for a strange behavior and they were all too alert to a divagation which might mean trouble. He had no desire to end in confinement with Morris. "'I'm coming,' Raff said sullenly. But he remained sitting on the edge of the pad until Wanstead left the cabin, 
and he followed as slowly as he could. So he was not with the others when a new sound tore through the constant vibrating hum which filled the narrow quarters of the ship. Raff stiffened, the icy touch of fear tensing his muscles. Was that the red alarm of disaster? His eyes went to the light at the end of the short passage, but no blink of warning red shone there. Not danger? Then what? It took him a full moment to realize what he had heard, not the signal of doom, but the sound which was to herald the accomplishment of their mission, the sound which unconsciously they had all given up any hope of ever hearing. They had made it! The pilot leaned weakly against the wall, and his eyes smarted, his hands were trembling. In that moment he knew that he had never really, honestly believed that they would succeed. But they had! RS-10 had reached the stars! Strap down for turnout! Strap down for turnout! The disembodied voice screaming through the ship's speecher was that of Captain Hobart, but it was almost unrecognizable with emotion. Raff turned and stumbled back to his cabin, staggered to throw himself once more on his pad as he fumbled with the straps he must buckle over him. He heard rather than saw Wanstead blunder in to follow his example, and for the first time in months the other was dumb not uttering a word as he stowed away for the breakthrough which would take them back into normal space and the star worlds. Raft tore a nail on a fastening, muttered, "'Condition red! Condition red! Strap down for breakthrough!' Hobart chanted at them from the walls. "'One, two, three. The count swung on numeral by numeral, then, ten. Stand by!' Raff had forgotten what breakthrough was like. He had gone through it the first time when still under take-off sedation. But this was worse than he remembered, so much worse. He tried to scream out his protest against the torture which twisted mind and body, but he could not utter even a weak cry. This, this was unbearable. A man could go mad or die. Die! Die! He aroused with the flat sweetness of blood on his tongue, a splitting pain behind the eyes he tried to focus on the too familiar scrap of wall. A voice boomed, receded, and boomed again, filling the air and at last making sense, in a ring of wild triumph. Made it! This is it, men! We've made it! Soul-class sun, three planets! We'll set an orbit in— Raff licked his lips. It was still too much to swallow in one mental gulp. So, they had made it! Half of their venture was accomplished. They had broken out of their own solar system, made the big jump, and before them lay the unknown. Now it was within their reach. "'Do you hear that, kid?' demanded Wanstead, his voice no longer an accusing whine, more steady than Raff ever remembered hearing it. "'We got through! We'll hit dirt again! Dirt!' His words trailed away as if he were sinking into some blissful daydream. There was a different feeling to the ship herself. The steady drone which had ached in their ears, their bones, as she bored her way through the alien hyperspace, had changed to a purr as if she too were rejoicing at the success of their desperate try. For the first time in weary weeks Raff remembered his own duties which would begin when the RS-10 came in to a flame-cushioned landing on a new world. He was to assemble and ready the small exploration flyer to man its controls and take it up and out. 
frowning, he began to run over in his mind each step in the preparations he must make as soon as they planted it. Information came down from control, where now the ports were open on normal space, and the engines were under control of the spacer's pilot. Their goal was to be the third planet, one which showed signs of atmosphere, of water and earth ready and waiting. Those who were not on flight duty crowded into the tiny central cabin, where they elbowed each other before the viewer. The ball of alien earth grew from a pinpoint to the size of an orange. They forgot time in the wonder which none had ever thought in his heart he would see on the screen. Raff knew that in control every second of this was being recorded as they began to establish a braking orbit, which with luck would bring them down on the surface of the new world. Cities. Those must be cities. Those in the cabin studied the plate with awe as the information filtered through the crew. Lablet, their xenobiologist, sat with his fingers rigid on the lower bar of the visa plate, so intent that nothing could break his vigil, while the rest speculated wildly. Had they really seen cities? Raff went down the corridor to the door of the sealed compartment that held the machine and the supplies for which he was responsible. These last hours of waiting were worse with their nagging suspense than all the time which had gone before. If they could only set down. He had, on training trips which now seemed very far in the past, trod the rust-red desert country of Mars, waddled in a bulky protective suit across the peaked ranges of the dead moon, known something of the larger asteroids. But how would it feel to tread ground warmed by the rays of another sun? Imagination with which his superiors did not credit him began to stir. Traits inherited from a mixture of races were there to be summoned. Raff retreated once more into his cabin and sat on his bunk-pad, staring down at his own capable mechanic's hands without seeing them, picturing instead all the wonders which might lie just beyond the next few hours' imprisonment in this metallic shell he had grown to hate with a dull but abiding hatred. Although he knew that Hobart must be fully as eager as any of them to land, it seemed to Raff, and the other impatient crew members, that they were very long in entering the atmosphere of the chosen world. It was only when the order came to strap down for deceleration that they were in a measure satisfied. Pull of gravity, ship beaming in at an angle which swept it from night to day or night again, as it encircled that unknown globe. They could not watch their objective any longer. The future depended entirely upon the skill of the three men in control, and last of all upon Hobart's judgment and skill. The captain brought them down, riding the flaming counter-blast from the ship's tail to set her on her fins in an expert point landing, so that the RS-10 was a finger of light into the sky amid wisps of smoke from brush ignited by her landing. There was another wait which seemed endless to the restless men within a wait until the air was analyzed, the countryside surveyed. But when the go-ahead signal was given and the ramp swung out, those first at the hatch still hesitated for an instant or so, though the way before them was open. Beyond the burnt ground about the ship was a rolling plain covered with tall grass, which rippled under the wind. And the freshness of that wind cleansed their lungs of the taint of the ship. Raff pulled off his helmet, 
held his head high in that breeze. It was like bathing in air, washing away the smog of those long days of imprisonment. He ran down the ramp, past the little group of those who had preceded him, and fell on his knees in the grass, catching at it with his hands, a little overawed at the wonder of it all. The wide sweep of sky above them was not entirely blue, he noted. There was the faintest suggestion of green, and across it moved clouds of silver. But, save for the grass, they might be in a dead and empty world. Where were the cities? Or had those been born of imagination? After a while, when the wonder of this landing had somewhat worn away, Hobart summoned them back to the prosaic business of setting up base and Raff went to work at his own task. The sealed storeroom was opened, the supplies slung by crane down from the ship. The compact assembly, streamlined for this purpose, was all ready for the morrow. They spent the night within the ship, much against their will. After the taste of freedom they had been given, the cramped interior weighed upon them, closing like a prison. Raff lay on his pad, unable to sleep. It seemed to him that he could hear, even through the heavy plates, the sigh of that refreshing wind, the call of the open world lying ready for them. Step by step in his mind he went through the process for which he would be responsible the next day, the uncrating of the small flyer, the assembling of frame and motor, and some time in the midst of that survey he did fall asleep, so deeply that Wanstead had to shake him awake in the morning. He bolted his food, and was out at his job before it was far past dawn. But eager as he was to get to work, he paused just to look at the earth scuffed up by his boots, to stare for a long moment at a stalk of tough grass, and remember with a thrill which never lessened that this was not native earth or grass, that he stood where none of his race, or even of his kind, had stood before, on a new planet in a new solar system. Raff's expert training and instruction paid off. By evening he had the flitter assembled save for the motor which still reposed on the turning block. One party had gone questing out into the grass and returned with the story of a stream hidden in a gash in the plain, and Wanstead carried the limp body of a rabbit-sized, furred creature he had knocked over at the waterside. Acted tame! Wanstead was proud of his kill stupid thing just stood and watched me while I let fly with a stone. Raff picked up the little body. Its fur was red-brown, plush thick, and very soft to the touch. The breast was creamy white, and the forepaws curiously short with an uncanny resemblance to his own hands. Suddenly he wished that Wanstead had not killed it, though he supposed that Chow, their biologist, would be grateful. But the animal looked particularly defenseless. It would have been better not to mark their first day on this new world with a killing, even if it were the knocking over of a stupid rabbit thing. The pilot was glad when Chow bore it off, and he no longer had to look at it. It was after the evening meal that Raff was called into consultation by the officers to receive his orders. When he reported that the flitter, barring unexpected accidents, would be airborne by the following afternoon, he was shown an enlarged picture from the records made during the descent of the R.S. 10. Here was a city right enough, showing up well from the air. Hobart stabbed a finger down into the heart of it. 
That lies south from here. We'll cruise in that direction. Raff would have liked to ask some questions of his own. The city photographed was a sizable one. Why then this deserted land here? Why hadn't the inhabitants been out to investigate the puzzle of the spaceship's landing? He said slowly, I've mounted one gun, sir. Do you want the other installed? It will mean that the flitter can only carry three instead of four. Hobart pulled his lower lip between his thumb and forefinger. He glanced at his lieutenant, then to Lablet, sitting quietly to one side. It was the latter who spoke first. I'd say this shows definite traces of retrogression. He touched the photograph. The place may even be only a ruin. Very well. Leave off the other gun, Hobart ordered crisply, and be ready to fly at dawn day after tomorrow with full field kit. You are sure she'll have at least a thousand-mile cruising radius? Raff suppressed a shrug. How could you tell what any machine would do under new conditions? The flitter had been put through every possible test in his home world. Whether she would perform as perfectly here was another matter. They thought she would, sir he replied. I'll take her up for a shakedown run tomorrow, after the motor is installed. Captain Hobart dismissed him with a nod, and Raff was glad to clatter down ladders into the cool of the evening once more. Flying high in a formation of two lanes were some distant birds. At least he supposed they were birds. But he did not call attention to them. Instead he watched them out of sight, lingering alone with no desire to join those crew members who had built a campfire a little distance from the ship. The flames were familiar and cheerful, a portion somehow of their native world transported to the crew. Raff could hear the murmur of voices, but he turned and went to the flitter. Taking his hand-torch, he checked the work he had done during the day. Tomorrow. Tomorrow he could take her up into the blue-green sky circle out over the sea of grass for a short testing flight. That much he wanted to do. But the thought of the cruise south, of venturing toward that sprawling splotch Hobart and Lablet identified as a city, was somehow distasteful, and he was reluctant to think about it. End of chapter